You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 26. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As, we sent, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We're in John chapter 17, so go ahead and turn there with me if you haven't yet. My name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my honor to walk through this passage with you today. We're nearing the end of this unit called the Farewell Discourse, Jesus' closing words to his disciples. In John chapter 17 specifically, is Jesus' prayer that he prays 
as he now makes his way to the cross. His disciples, his friends, they're hearing every word that he says. And so when we first studied this two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus, you know, when you cut someone, what do they bleed? What's Jesus passionate about? Like, you know what someone cares about when they pray. So here's Jesus praying. What does he care about? Verses 1 through 5, we've already seen that he cares about God, us, and heaven. That's what he's passionate about, the glory of God, relationship with us, the reward of heaven. And now what Jesus prays for, and here's the main idea of this entire passage that we're going through, this entire message today, Jesus prays for compelling perseverance for the church. He prays for us, you and I, his friends, his disciples, to have lives that are marked by compelling perseverance. So what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to walk through this passage, 6 through 23, and I'm just going to inductively teach it, just try to study it together, interpret what it says, understand the text. I'm going to withhold on making any application until the very end. So main idea, Jesus prays for us to have lives that are marked by compelling perseverance. We're going to try to understand that in this text. And then we're going to conclude with some final words on application. All right? Sound good? All right. So Jesus prays for compelling perseverance for the church. Uh, in verses uh, 6 through 19, you need to know that he's praying for his disciples, not for you and I yet. We come in verses 20 through 23. But right now, Jesus is praying it for his immediate friends. There's real no um, direct application for us. So we're just going to study what he says about his friends. It starts with verses 6 through 10, which is Jesus, through prayer, acknowledging where his disciples are at in this very moment, where they have come to spiritually for the last three years of his ministry, their life with him. So what have the disciples believed up to this moment? Verse 6, I have manifested your name to them, he says. I have manifested your name. Now, the name of God, you know, it's, it's who he is. It's the disclosure of himself. It's his very essence. This comes from Exodus 34. Remember, Moses says, God, show me your glory. I want to know who I'm dealing with here. And God says, okay, I'll tell you my name. I'm going to expand my name for you. And it's this, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So the name of God is just who he is to his very core. It's what, make him, it's what makes him tick. It's what he's passionate about, his mercy and grace and justice. And so they have believed that Jesus, in some way, in some sense, is the very revelation of God, that, this, that, that he shows us who God is. He narrates who God is. They believe in some way that Jesus, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 52, verse 6, which says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. They shall know my name. Jesus narrates the name of God. He has manifested God's name to them, and they have believed. Now, let's keep in mind this theme of the disciples believing that Jesus is from God, that he narrates who God is in verses 7 and 8. Jump there with me. It says, Now they know, Jesus prays, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. So see, in some sense, as much as they're capable of at this, up to this very moment, the disciples have believed that Jesus is from above, sent from heaven, reveals who God is, and is invested with God's authority. They have believed Jesus' words as the words of God, as the very truth of God. So they believed up to this moment. But 
because they've believed, what does that mean about them? Like, what does that say about these 12 friends? Verse 6 continues. Jump back there with me. It says this. He continues, to the people whom you gave me out of the world, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So these disciples, those who believe in the name of Jesus, are the elect or the called out ones. They're in the world, but not of the world. God has chosen them, and Jesus has sought them out and called them to himself. And this theme of these, these disciples being called out of the world, chosen out of the world, in the world, but not of the world, is repeated again in verses 9 and 10. If you want to jump there with me, we're going to follow this theme. Jesus prays, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So see, these disciples up to this point, they've been chosen out of the world, they're in the world, but not of the world, and they're secure in God, in Christ. God has chosen them, Jesus has found them and secured them. And so because the disciples have believed and because the disciples have been chosen out of the world, the result is what? Like we're being logical today. We're doing an inductive study today. What's the result of all of this? Verse 6 continues. And they have kept your word. They have persevered. They have not abandoned. They've had many opportunities to abandon at this point, but they haven't. Remember in John chapter 6, Peter says, only you have the words of life, Jesus. Everyone else at that moment abandoned Jesus, but these friends stuck around because they believed that Jesus is sent from God, and they persevered. And it's really important to notice that their perseverance, their obedience to keep the words of Jesus and remain in the words of Jesus is not the basis of their belief. It's not the basis of them being chosen. It's the product, the result of their belief in being chosen. Get that? That's really important. This is the evidence that they're not of the world, although still remain in the world. So, the disciples, they've believed up to this point that Jesus is from God. They're chosen out of the world, and they've remained and persevered in Jesus' words. And so, it's this present state that Jesus is acknowledging where his friends are at that catapults him to begin to pray for their future. What, he's, what has, has been occurring for the last three years and where these disciples have landed spiritually in their belief and in their perseverance in Jesus, Jesus now prays that it will continue, that they will continue to persevere. So look at verse 11. Jesus prays, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus is asking, pleading with God, for God to finish what he has started in these friends. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it out till the day of completion. Jesus is praying just that for his friends. What God has started, please finish. Jesus is going to leave the world. The disciples are going to remain in it. So Jesus prays that they will, will remain in his name. So, there's one clarification, though. Jesus makes sure, is sure to address this in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. They've all persevered, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, the son of destruction, the son of perdition in some of your Bibles, it's a phrase that appears a few times in your Old Testament Bible. It refers to persons who, who, have, who, are, who just 
evil character, just evil people, or refers to the destiny of such people, such evil people. It's also in the New Testament used as a phrase that refers to the Antichrist, if you didn't know that. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the Antichrist is called by this very phrase, the son of destruction. And so whatever your belief is about the Antichrist, uh, what is abundantly clear throughout the entire biblical story is there is this pattern of persons who embody rebellion against God and who are given this title, son of destruction, and Judas is one of these people. He fits into this pattern of people who oppose God and his purposes. And what's clear, just in Judas's case, is that God is sovereign, completely sovereign over Judas and his betrayal, but Judas is also completely free and accountable for his decisions and actions. So, so far in this passage, just think about this with me. We've seen God's sovereignty. God reveals himself. God's the one who chooses. Jesus is the one who calls out. God is the one who preserves us. We also find out here right now in verse 12 that God is the mastermind behind Judas's betrayal. What Judas is doing is just a part of God's purposes. It's his purposes unfolding, and Judas is a part of that. But also, you need to know that Judas is totally responsible for his free choices. John records that he stole money from the purse very consistently uh, in the story where Mary wants to give this extravagant gift to Jesus and break that alabaster jar and anoint Jesus as his feet. Remember what Judas says in that moment? He says, we should have sold that and given it to the poor. Well, the guy who uh, often helps himself to the money, the ministry purse, would say something like that, wouldn't he? So we know all along that Judas's heart has not been in this. And when it becomes abundantly clear to Judas that Jesus is not the king he hoped he would be, that he's not going to restore this glorious dynasty of ancient Israel, Judas turns. He, 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 he turns his back on Jesus, his friend. And so just like, just like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, just like those who crucified Christ, just like everybody who remains of the world, God is sovereign over that unbelief. And those people are part of his unfolding purposes. But every single person's free choice to rebel and defy God plays into that. You know, God achieves his predetermined sovereign purposes through our actions, our free choices. That's what's abundantly clear in Judas's example. And Jesus acknowledges that here in this passage. But he keeps on praying for his friends. Continue with me in verse 13. He keeps, he keeps praying for his friends. Verse 13. Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Underline these things in verse 13. When he says these things, he's not referring to like right here in this moment. Jesus is talking about all of his words that he's ever taught, all of his, his system of teaching. He's saying these friends have believed these things, and I want them to continue in these things. So why? My joy may be fulfilled in them to persevere. To persevere, though, because of the joy that Jesus brings them through his words. Back in John 15, verse 11, Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So he prays they will remain in his teaching, so they will have a joy that causes them to persevere in the world. So perseverance. He prays for God to finish what he has started, but now he turns his attention to their witness, right? We're talking about being a compelling people who persevere but do so attractively. Compelling perseverance, verses 14 through 18. Jesus wants them to persevere attractively. I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. That means consecrate them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is very clear here that he wants them to be like him. Who is Jesus? What's his relationship to the world? He's from heaven coming into the world as the light of the world, and the darkness has not overcome the light. He wants his friends to persevere in that way, to live in the world and to be present in the world, but do so attractively in the world as otherworldly creatures, as otherworldly beings. And that's why he prays, sanctify them, consecrate them. That at a minimum certainly talks about moral purity, right? To be a people whose lives are in accordance with God's vision for, for life. No doubt about that. But it means much more than that too. It means to be different, to be other, to be set apart, and therefore to be attractive, to stand out against the world as something really remarkable and tremendous. That's what Jesus' will is for his friends, that they would persevere in a very compelling way. And look, this is what they do. Acts chapter 5, the apostles, these guys, they're beaten, and then they're charged to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. They're beaten and then released, and you know what they do in Acts chapter 5? They walk out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus, to be treated like him. Now, who does that? Who gets beaten, shamed, and embarrassed in a public way, released, and walks away celebrating together? Only people of a different world. Only people of a different kind of humanity that Jesus has started. Only people who are in the world but not of it. So, hope you see that Jesus longs for his disciples to be compelling in their perseverance. And I want you to notice something. This is really important. Verse 19, Jesus's prayer, it's not wishful thinking. He's not merely just like hoping, like we use the word hope. Like it's, that's equivalent to wishing. Jesus isn't merely wishing, hoping that they will succeed. It's guaranteed, verse 19. And for their sake, for their sake, these friends' sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. The guarantee of the disciples' success, that their perseverance is going to win and that it will be compelling, is the very success of Jesus. He has consecrated himself to the Father's purpose and will soon guarantee the victory of his kingdom and his people on the cross. So this is why in Matthew 16 you read, On this rock, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who is that rock? In one sense, it's the apostles, but first and foremost, it's the chief cornerstone of the temple, the new temple, Jesus himself. On this rock, on Jesus, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. His death, burial, resurrection, seal this victory and set it in stone. So Jesus prays with confidence that his disciples will endure in compelling perseverance. That was, that was a lot, right? We rolled through that pretty quick. Now, here's my question for you. It's a question I wrestled with all week. Why would we take the time to analyze this passage? It has nothing to do with us. This is about the disciples. This is about his friends. Why would we review this? And here's why it's really important. It's because it does have something to do with us, and here's what it has to do with us. If you don't know the past, you won't know your future. You won't. If you, 
You know, it's, it's been said that if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. In the same way, if you don't know the original expectations, that original vision for something, then you won't meet, up, you won't meet it. You won't step into it. So if you don't know the past, you won't know your future. Think about every effective institution. Think about every really successful business. There's core values that set the precedent for the future. And that's what Jesus is establishing here. He wants this original group of friends who are going to bring into conception this thing called the church of Jesus. He wants to do it, them to do it in a certain way. And you know what? The baton's being handed off to you and I. This is our story now. This is the past, and now we are the future. So whatever way we go, it should be consistent with this initial prayer of Jesus for his disciples. So now we turn where Jesus turns. He's prayed for his friends to endure in a compelling way, and now he prays for us, the future church, us right here today, Citizens Church, to be marked by the same compelling perseverance. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, underline the word, word. Does that make sense? I know that's redundant. Underline the word, word, okay? It, there's repetition here in this passage. It's a key theme in this passage. Back in verse 6, Jesus prayed that they have kept your word. In verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And now we believe in their word. So you, if you're paying attention and reading with sensitivity, you should see this sequence across this prayer they believed in Jesus' word, they persevered in Jesus' word, and through their ministry, we are now entrusted with their word, which is the same word as Jesus' word. So we persevere in the word just as they were expected and prayed to persevere in the word. And what's the result? What's the result of our perseverance in the word? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So the word passed on from these original friends to you and I. It makes us one. That's the product, the result of this. In this oneness, notice in verse 21, it's a oneness that's characterized by what? It's pretty incredible. It's a oneness that's characterized by the oneness of Father and Son. That's what it says in verse 21, that our unity, our oneness as a people is to be the same profound depth and level as the triune God. That's pretty awesome. That's a pretty high standard. Earlier in verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus is really serious. He wants us to be one. He wants us to be unified to a very deep and profound level that's as strong as the unity that's found in the Godhead himself. High standard, strong call. We'll need help. And that's what Jesus prays next as he continues in verse 21. He says, that they may be one just as you, Father, and I, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Wow. So what that means is as we are one with one another at this call to unity, this call to oneness, it doesn't just forge us together, drive us together, but also drives us deeper into fellowship with God himself. Like we need his power. We need his wisdom if we are to sustain this oneness that Jesus is praying for. This is how we're going to persevere. This is how we're going to make it in the world and not compromise by sticking together, but with the strength of God himself. And look what occurs in verse 21 as a result. 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. A, just think about this with me. A community, a community of people that are one, you know, so committed to one another and love one another with a, with a unity that is shaped and defined by the very oneness and love of the Trinity and who are deriving their strength from the triune God in order to be one, that kind of community is going to look really remarkable, won't it? That kind of community is going to be like an otherworldly human society that just shows people what they're missing, what their hearts really long for. So I hope you see that everything Jesus prayed for his disciples, he prays for you and I now to endure with a compelling witness. Jesus collapses all this into one idea in 22 and 23. He finishes saying this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That glory he's talking about there in verse 22 is the revelation of God that he brings about. That's the glory he's talking about. So the truth, the words, the revelation that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. So this, to God's truth, the revelation of God through Christ, all at once it creates a community that perseveres in oneness with one another and with Father and Son. And this oneness, it does what? Verse 23, as we finish or just finish the inductive part. We still have application. 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The result is that the world, apart from Jesus, without Jesus, sees what they're missing in those of us who are together because of him and in fellowship with him. So Jesus wants for us what he wanted for his friends, compelling perseverance, compelling perseverance, attractive oneness, navigating our world through the world, navigating our way through the world together. So that's Jesus's vision here in this prayer, compelling perseverance. Now let's talk application. Sound good? You guys ready? All right, good. I like that. I, I felt some energy. You guys got an extra hour of sleep last night. You should be bringing it. All right, let's think about prayer. Let's think about prayer from this passage. Jesus knows he's going to win. Jesus knows that his friends are going to persevere. Jesus even knows that Judas is going is to is opt out. Right? Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. Why does he pray then for it to happen? It's kind of weird, right? Why would Jesus pray and plead with the Father for these things that he knows will come to pass? It's because when you're desperate, you pray. Jesus loves these friends. <laughs> I think we forget about that. We, we dehumanize Jesus and make him really distant and safe, but Jesus actually, his heart just yearns for these friends. He's invested himself into these people. He wants them to be okay. He wants them to persevere. Even though he knows that's what's going to happen, he prays for it to happen because his heart is with them. He's desperate, pleading with God to finish what God has started. This is what desperate, humble, loving people do. They cast themselves upon the Father because he alone has the power to do it. And Jesus here, you know, leaning into his humanity, feels totally dependent on God for God to bring about what he has promised to do. And so he prays. And so look, you'll never learn to pray if you're not desperate, if you're not humble, if you don't love other people. 
Because it's those three characteristics that drive you to your knees and to pray like you mean it and to plead with your Father in heaven. In the same vein, Jesus prays that the Father would do what he is certain will come to pass. Uh, That's instructive for us. God's determined will, you know, God's written history before it began. He's written all of our lives, every day of our lives, every day of history before it all began. God's determined will comes to pass, unfolds, how? According to our prayers? You know, we tend to think that, that our part to play, our free choices, what we do is incompatible with God's sovereign will. They're not incompatible. It makes a whole. You bring them together and it makes the whole picture here. God's determined will unfolds according to our prayers. So if you want to understand how God's sovereignty and human responsibility work, here's what you do. You pray. You pray God's promises, and you see what he has said he will do come to pass through your pleading. So we have a lot to learn about prayer from this passage. One more word on prayer, I think, to encourage you just to bolster your prayer life here, to bolster my prayer life here. This situation... It's pretty fragile, isn't it? Think about this. Jesus is leaving his mission in the hands of 12 down 1, 11. And these guys, I mean, they, they weren't uh, the top candidates of, of like early synagogue school. They, they were called to, to under, follow Jesus as a rabbi way later in life when they were fishing. One of them was a tax collector, an enemy of the state, right? Like an enemy of the Jewish culture. One of them, several of them were zealots. Like this ragtag group of men is entrusted with the future of, of what we call the church. And they're supposed to go against Rome. They're supposed to somehow overcome the powers of Rome doing this. Fragile situation, right? Not much hope unless you believe in prayer. How are they going to make it? By Jesus' prayer. We must really under, underestimate the potential of prayer, Right? we must really misunderstand that God actually hears us and answers our prayer. We must really misunderstand that the realization of God's promises and his glory are not determined by the fragility of our situations, but by prayer. Maybe it's actually through our fragile situations, that through dependent prayer, God moves, that God does things, that he shows up and acts powerfully. Maybe if it's fragile, that's exactly where we're supposed to be. So he gets all the glory. So everyone knows that it was him. So Jesus models for us how to pray. That's one application. Another application, a word on the past and present aspect of this passage. We talked about he he has this prayer for his present disciples. Then he has a prayer for us here today. Is there a connection between the two, the past and the present? It's really important that you recognize that there is a connection between the past and the present because you and I, have to have a story to live by. Each and every single one of us in here live our lives according to story. We do. It's just this paradigm that you're not even conscious of that helps you navigate through every single day of your life. Why do we love movies? Why do we get lost in novels? It's partly because we understand our life through story. So each of us long to be in touch with our own beginnings, don't we? Each of us, you know, we like going home to where we moved from, where we grew up, 
uh, we moved back home to where we were from, right? We, each of us want to be in touch with our, our origins, our beginning. Each of us want to survive conflict, navigate conflict well, and navigate our setting and know what our setting is, right? Why is that? We were meant for a story. We were purposed to be embedded within a greater narrative. And so if you don't know what story your life is taking place in, I'm telling you right now, you are going to struggle. Things will just not make sense for you, and you'll be caught off guard all of the time, totally lambasted by the surprises of life, unless you know what story you're in. And what story are you in? Their story, this story, the only story, the great meta-narrative of life. The church prevailing against the gates of hell through compelling perseverance in the victory of Jesus. That's the story we're in, and nothing else makes sense. And so look, young people, which I'm like most of us in here, okay, but I'm even talking like high school, even kids here today with your parents, you're going to be told a bunch of different stories. You're going to be told a bunch of different paradigms and frameworks for life that that people are going to try to... uh, uh, tell you. You know, there's the political story, there's the self-discovery story, there's the self-realization story, there's the American dream story, there's the comfortable and convenient, full of excuses Christianity story. There's a lot of different stories that are going to be coming at you in your life. What story are you going to adopt as your story? This is the only story that's true, the only story that's going to make sense of your life. So if you know the story you're in, And if you know that that story requires compelling perseverance, you will remain poised when the going gets tough. You won't throw in the towel like Judas did when it starts to not make sense. You're going to keep going because you know this is just a part of the story. And look, if you remember that that, uh, you're in a story and you need to adopt a story and you need to adopt this story, let me just tell you something else that's that's, um, culturally sensitive kind of thing. Like, we no longer have heroes. We herald celebrities, people who get attention and who get headliners now, no heroes, celebrities. Our, our culture has been gutted of heroes, but you need heroes. Each and every single one of us need heroes because we're part of a story. We need someone to look to. We need someone to show us the way. We need someone who's a few steps ahead of us. Make these men your heroes. These 11 men, 10 of them, went to, the, went to death for Jesus in brutal ways. All of them were faithful to the end. Throughout all of history, there's so many brothers and sisters that we will meet, the great cloud of witnesses that we will meet in the age to come who've gone before us, know their story. Do you have friends? Do you have mentors? Do you have pastors that you can look up to, leaders you can look up to, to help you navigate your way through this story? We all need heroes. You need to surround yourself with heroes. And here's what's going to happen. If you adopt this story, your, your life won't be full, as full of surprises. You won't be so derailed when things, when things get knocked off course. You're surrounded by heroes. Your story that you're living in, you know, the mini story in the macro story, what's going to happen is you're going to pull people into that story. Uh, one author says this, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. It's true. That's the marketing strategy of today. Let's just tell the best story. It's true. We have the best story. It's a story that we show as we live, and then our lives establish credibility so that the words that we say, like when we literally actually tell people the story, our words pierce deeply into people's heart. The seed of the word gets planted deeply. If you do well at this, people will catch on. So, You have to know what story you're in. 
Uh, another application here. We're going to keep rolling through. A word on oneness and unity. A word on oneness and unity because this is the heart of Jesus and this is what he's praying for. Oneness and unity, it's not uniformity. We're not going to agree on everything, and we are, but we are going to ground what? What's the glue to the community? What's the glue to Jesus' vision for his community? The gospel. Unity is commitment to one another with the gospel as the glue. Let me read a few verses here. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one bread, you know, one body broken for us, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Romans 12, 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we're different. We're different people with different backgrounds, different opinions. There's diversity, right? That's okay. That's good. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. What brings all these different kinds of people together in the same room, in the same family? The gospel in Christ and individually members of one another. He forges us together, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So there's diversity in unity. It's not uniformity. It's commitment to the gospel together. Paul writes just a few, a few verses later in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, as if to say, this is really hard work. Unity, oneness as a people, as a community, it's hard work because we're different than one another. But it's our commitment to the gospel that allows us to do this, and God will do it. Verse, Ephesians 4, one more verse here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, right? Like, like we're on the edge of our seat to, to be together, no matter what. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father over all, through all and in all. So we're one on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of the victory of Jesus. So in church, expect there to be disagreement. But our commitment to the gospel is worth working through disagreements. We're not one because of marginal things. We're one because of the centrality of the gospel. So unity, right, in here, in like a local assembly, very, very important. This is Jesus' vision for life, and it's very attractive to the world. I want to say one more thing, though. Unity is something that should be pursued not just within a local church, but across churches. Okay? Does that make sense? Unity... In the kingdom of Jesus, it's bigger than just what's happening in one church. It should, be, it should cause us to extend a hand of fellowship and collaborate with other churches across, the, across our county, across the world. This is Jesus' vision for his church. And although, obviously, there's like disagreements, other people have different interpretations uh, 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 of things that are not essential. Like, of course, other churches, they, we can't gather together regularly for worship if we have differences of opinion on things that are marginal right? But there should still be a pulsating passion to link arms with one another and advance the kingdom together. That makes Jesus look really, really good. And this is really important to you guys. I'll, I'm going to be honest with you here for a few minutes. This has been a huge immaturity of mine for a very long time. This has been so hard for me to get. Like I would read these kinds of passages and it just would like, it would kind of go through my head and out my ears. 
It wouldn't make sense to me. I didn't get it because formerly I was so insecure. I was so in need of vindication that my first instinct was to criticize other churches. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And it feels good to criticize, doesn't it? I felt the need to be superior, so I would step on other churches to elevate myself and elevate this church. I did that for a long time. But here's what happened. I started to believe the gospel more. <laughs> um, the gospel started getting deeper in my heart and transformed my heart. And that need for approval that I felt, like I needed other people to like me, I needed other people to respect me, I needed other people you know, to... to I uh, think I was impressive. As the gospel got deeper and deeper into my heart, I released that need to be approved by others because I felt approved by God. Loved and known by God. The very righteousness of Christ given to me, which means God is never going to leave me or abandon me. He always loves me, always accepts me. Like, that became so real to me. And it, it, man, a, a new lens was given me to look at the world and look at other churches. Without an ego to pad, I could relax and acknowledge that there is no perfect church no one church is getting it right at any moment in time. It takes a great deal of maturity to acknowledge that we're all still in process and will be until Jesus returns. Then, it'll all be settled. But until then, we work towards unity for the sake of Jesus' name. So now, you know, guys, it's been a huge transformation in my life. I'm so kingdom-minded now that I celebrate other churches winning. I celebrate other churches growing. When other churches win, when other churches grow, I feel like it's my win. I feel like it's our win because it's the kingdom of Jesus advancing. Those things that I used to scoff at and dismiss because I was so insecure I couldn't give anyone else any credit, now when other people win, I feel like I win. And here's the unfortunate thing I realized through this journey about a critical spirit, about a spirit that, that doesn't uh, long for unity across the board, across the across fellowship of the churches. The unfortunate thing about a critical spirit is when you cut yourself off from what other churches, oh, sorry, let me back up and say this rightly. The unfortunate thing about a critical spirit is that you cut yourself off from what other churches and leaders have to offer. And if we cut ourselves off from people who aren't exactly like us, what's going to happen is we're going to hit a ceiling on our growth and remain where we are. Here's the truth of the matter. Uh, what got you started will not keep you going. Like children eat chicken tenders and macaroni when they're little. When they're teenagers, they need something else like frozen pizza probably. But when they're adults, they need something more. They need to be nourished. And it's just a critical spirit towards other churches, other Christians, other people that we might disagree with or have differences of opinion on. It cuts us off from resources. It cuts us off from wisdom. It cuts us off from being nourished in ways that we need. And so if we remain critical in our spirits towards others and don't seek unity and are not humble towards other churches, then we will stagnate where we're at spiritually and never be blessed by other people. So now, the pastors that I used to criticize, they're my friends now. And I'm encouraged by them often. There is immense encouragement and resources in the kingdom of God, but formerly I could never be enriched matured and refined because I was so tribal. I was just so narrow, so bent on validating myself that I had no open-mindedness, uh, uh, no humility towards other people. So the Lord has taken me on this journey out of a critical mindset towards a kingdom mindset. And I'm so thankful he has because now I see the power 
the potential of Jesus' vision here for the church to be one, not just here, but abroad, across the board. And so listen, I want us to be a church whose first instinct is to commend, not criticize. So important. Our first instinct is to commend others, other churches, other Christians, instead of being scrutinizing and skeptical. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, sorry, I skipped a line, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's the call. Think about what is good, what's commendable, what's pure, what's right. That's the godly, that's the godly posture to commend, not criticize. Even Charles Spurgeon, I love this. He says this. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote from him that he talks about his friend George Herbert, who is in a totally different tradition than him. He says this. It'll be behind me on the screen. Where the Spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ is constraineth me no more to think of him a stranger or foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. He says this. Now, I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan. <laughs> high churchism, you know, um, liturgy, maybe more of a yeah, different, different way of things. He says, I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan, but I love George Herbert. Although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul. And I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ, as George Herbert did. <clears throat> and I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for that question, for I cannot help myself. Unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ, I cannot cease loving those who love him. I will defy you, if you have any love to Jesus Christ, to pick or choose among his people. I remember a few years ago, we had a family visiting Citizens Church, considering joining the church, and they hesitated because... They came into our church, and they were telling people where they were going. In a few different conversations, they just felt like their church was being railed at. And I didn't take that as a blame of this church. I took that as a blame of me. That was a reflection of me and of my leadership and my immaturity and my insecurity. So if we don't get this right, we will be isolated from the rest of the kingdom of Jesus, stuck and blind in pride, and we will be the less powerful and the less mature for it. Be one with one another and with others on the basis of the gospel. And now here's the last thing. What does this have to do with the mission of the world? What does any of this, like this unity, have to do with our mission that Jesus is calling us to? Here's what it has to do. Here's the answer. When the world sees a diverse community of people and communities of people sticking together because of a man who claimed to be God, is claimed to have resurrected and be the savior of the world, it gives some legitimacy to those claims. One author says this, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. You know, you and I, this community are the only Bible people may read. 
We're the only Christ people will see. John 17, 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our compelling perseverance, it alerts the world that Jesus was sent and it reveals a love that they long for. So when you cut Jesus, what does he bleed? He bleeds a longing for us to persevere in an attractive way, to be people of compelling perseverance. So here in just a moment, we're going to take the supper together. And when we take the supper, the supper is our conscious effort to remind ourselves that we are one. One on the basis of the oneness of God. One on the basis of the body and the blood of Jesus broken and spilled for us so that we could be drawn together and saved by him and reconciled to the Father. And so here in just a few moments, we're going to open up the middle aisle uh, to come and grab the elements if you're here as a Christian and to take it back to your seat. But I want you to spend this time of reflection just asking God to search you and know you. Asking him, am I persevering in a compelling way? You know, your vision for life, Jesus, doesn't match my vision for life. And so I invite you to invite uh, the Spirit into this time now to search you and know you. So Jesus' will for us is that we persevere in a compelling way. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.